In September 2020, during one of the presidential debates between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, a word was spoken, a single word that surprised those who heard it. Donald Trump has stated that he would release his private tax returns, to which then-candidate Joe Biden shot back with a single-word sarcastic jab. While many viewers missed it or misunderstood it, Arab-speaking viewers picked it up immediately. The word that was used was inshallah. Well, Biden probably meant to use the word in its sarcastic application, meaning too good to be true. This Arabic word, which is used by Muslims and Arabic Christians, literally means the Lord or God willing. It's a word that is used in that culture that's attached to a future event, which when in its truest theological sense underscores God's control over the events of our lives. I remember hearing that word for the very first time from my Muslim translator when I was deployed as the chaplain at Craig Joint Theater Hospital in Bagram, Afghanistan. Still in the throes of combat, our base was attacked regularly. But due to an advanced detection system, we were warned of those incoming rockets by a siren and a loud voice, and we had the opportunity to hit the ground or the floor in a prone position so that shrapnel would be directed up and over us if we were in the radius of the impact. I'll never forget diving for the floor of the hospital upon the blaring message, incoming, incoming, incoming. And I'll also never forget how my translator, an Afghan man, didn't even bother to get down. The thought of potential death didn't seem to alarm him. And when I asked him about it and asked him why he wasn't concerned about this, he said to me, if God wills that I'm alive, I'll be alive. And if God wills that I'm dead, I'll be dead. Inshallah, he would say. Now, I don't subscribe to that type of what you might call fatalism, but I think I had an important lesson to learn while I was there. In fact, I know I did. A lesson most of us need to learn about the sovereignty of God. And a lesson about the delusion of my own self-sovereignty. Sovereignty, it's a big theological concept and an important one for us to at least define in a limited sense before we open today's text. A sovereign is a ruler, a king, a lord. And so to be sovereign means to rule over, to have control over. When we speak of the sovereignty of God, we mean that he rules over all things and that everything that happens, happens according to his plan, his intention, his will. While his sovereignty means more than just control, it cannot mean less than God's control. God is in control over all. He has never abdicated his throne, not once. And if God is in control, it must follow, my friends, that you and I are not in control. That might come as a surprise to you. You and I are not in control of our lives. If he is the Lord and the sovereign over all the universe, it means that we are his subjects. At first thought, I doubt that any of us would disagree with that statement. But I would dare to suggest this morning that if we could examine the innermost parts of our hearts today, they might tell a different story. 
If we could open the, the recesses of our thoughts and our attitudes, we might see that we all too frequently behave as if we are the ones on the throne rather than God. We do so as Americans when we say that we are self-made, as those who are certain that we have pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps, that we've done things, in the words of Frank Sinatra, my way. We've saved, we've worked hard, we've been successful. Those of us who are parents also act as sovereigns, whether we like to think we do or not. We are obsessed with the health and the safety and the success of our children. We live to ensure that our kids have it better than we did. We fear for their safety, and consequently, we do all in our power to control the outcome of situations for our children. We're anxious about their futures, as if we can in some way control them. And when they slip up and they make a decision that is less than wise or even harmful to themselves or others, we feel responsible for not having done enough. Parents, have you ever felt that way? As simple and harmless as these examples may seem, I think both reveal an all-too-normal tendency to believe that we are somehow in control of our own destinies that we control our own futures, that we are not only the actors in our stories, but we are the authors of those stories. And ladies and gentlemen, when I would, while I would never suggest standing during a rocket attack, there's something to be learned from that ancient concept, inshallah, especially for us as 21st century American Christians. For behind that word is the reminder that almighty God rules and is sovereign over our lives, and we are not. In case you're just joining us for the first time this morning or you've been away for some time, we are working our way through the book of James this summer. We're in week number eight of our study, and we've learned that this letter was not written to a particular individual church, but was addressed to churches, to tribes in James' language that had been dispersed throughout the regions they had been dispersed because of suffering that had begun in Jerusalem at the hands of Paul, we then called Saul, we read about in Acts. James is concerned that these Christians who are facing persecutions remain faithful during their trials, that they not give up their faith, that they not only endure hard times, but they embrace those hard times and learn from them, and that through it all, their faith remains in action. He's concerned that they stay the course and live out their salvation, that they be both hearers and doers of the word. And as we come to this passage today, we receive a strong warning about what we're going to call a delusion of self-sovereignty. What I want to do with you this morning is to examine the dangers of this delusion. If you'll turn with me to James chapter 4, we'll begin by reading the passage together. James chapter 4, we will read verses 13 through 17, and I'm reading to you from the English Standard Version of the Bible. James chapter 4, beginning with verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. If you're following along in your outline this morning, the first danger we see with this delusion of self-sovereignty is that it is driven by materialism. It is driven by materialism. As we open the text, we immediately can ascertain that James is addressing a segment of the church that were merchants. These are business people who are not already wealthy. They haven't already attained wealth. Rather, they are seeking wealth. They are going from place to place in order to buy to sell and to trade so that they can amass the fortune that is needed to purchase ancient estates on which the good life could be lived. In other words, they're working toward retirement, to put it in our own vernacular. Now, there's nothing unusual or unethical about these plans or actions, nor is there anything wrong with desiring to make a profit or to build a business or to invest well. What bothers James is that these Christians' direction and plans are void of spiritual value and move on an entirely worldly plane in which the chief objective is financial wealth. Does sound at all familiar? This text could easily have been addressed to you and me today. We make plans for financial gains, to invest, to make a profit, to prepare for the future, and to ensure our financial stability. But how often, how often is the kingdom of God and the work of the gospel at the heartbeat of our financial planning? How often do we submit our bank accounts, our retirement funds, our investments, and our assets to his lordship and ask what he wants us to do with them? Preacher, you say you're getting too close for comfort. How often do we recognize, truly recognize, that everything we have belongs to him and that we're merely stewards of those things and we're merely stewards of his wealth? I would suggest to you this morning that most of us are, without ever realizing it, living as if we were the sovereign of our financial futures. And in so doing, we displace God from his throne in our lives. For Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so if your heart is tied up with the material things of this world, you won't have room for God to rule. Conversely, if you believe that God is sovereign over all, you cannot allow materialism to be at the helm steering the course of your life. Come back to the text with me and let's discover the second danger of this type of self-sovereignty as we look at verse 14. Listen to how James continues, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Here's the second danger of the delusion of self-sovereignty. It is this, it denies the transitory nature of this life. It denies the transitory nature of this life. See, in laying their plans in reference to the world, these Christians that James addresses have failed to recognize a fundamental fact, the insubstantial and transitory nature of this world. 
They make plans as if they are confident that tomorrow will be here. And they are confident in next year. And in so doing, they disregard the counsel of Scripture. They ignore the words of Solomon in Proverbs 27.1 when he counseled his son, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. They disregard the wisdom of Job in chapter 7, verse 7, who during his heartache reflected, remember that my life is a breath. And they fail to give ear to the words of David in Psalm 39, 5. Behold, he wrote, you have made my days a few hand breaths. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. My friends, the biblical understanding of life on this earth it is, is that it is utterly dependent on God and cannot exist without God. God is the one who sustains life. That each day's 24 hours are not ours automatically. Let me say that again. Each day's 24 hours are not yours automatically. God controls time and gives it as one of his good gifts. A biblical understanding of this life sees each new day as a gift from God. When we think biblically, we awaken in the morning realizing that our eyes opening for the first time is not a natural necessity, nor a mechanical law, nor a right, nor a courtesy of nature, rather the breath in our lungs and in, in the life in our bodies. This moment is at the mercy and the sovereignty of God. Do you believe that? And have you ever really stopped to think about that? It took me going to combat to really realize that for the first time, to realize how out of control I truly am. And yet so often here in our culture, it's easy to get so wrapped up in life and forget just how dependent on God we are. Do you believe what David wrote in Psalm 139, verse 16, when he said, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Do you believe that before you were even conceived, God already knew when you would be born and when you would die? That he is sovereign over your life. He's sovereign over your breath. Do you believe that nothing happens by coincidence or by accident? Do you believe that there is no cancer, there is no pandemic, there is no disease that can alter the plan of God for your life? See, James wants to remind his readers, then and now, that making plans without recognizing the sovereignty of God over your time and your days on this earth is foolish and is pointless. We are but sojourners here. We are pilgrims. We are here for a moment and gone the next. This life is transitory and completely within the powerful, all-controlling hands of God. Continue with me in the text of verse 15 as we discover the next danger. Listen again. He said, instead, he continues, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. Here's the third danger. It places me as the epicenter of my universe. It places me as the epicenter of my universe. You see, when we live and we orient our lives around ourselves, around our desires, around our wishes, around our glory, we put ourselves first. There are few better examples of this reality than that of the Old Testament king Nebuchadnezzar. 
Do you remember his story? Let me just draw your attention to a few verses, beginning with chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 in Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up to the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The next two verses tell us that they all gathered and they stood before the image and they were told to fall down and worship the image when the music played. As the story goes on, we see that Nebuchadnezzar's ego just got bigger and bigger. And at the height of his reign, he was walking on the roof of his palace when he said to himself, look at this kingdom that I have built by my mighty power and for my glory. And at that very moment, the words had no sooner left Nebuchadnezzar's mouth than God spoke up. And took his kingdom away and said, you'll be driven from among men and live like an animal. Get this, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. If you ever read those couple of chapters, you will see those 15 words repeated three times. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. The lesson for Nebuchadnezzar and for all who witnessed his humiliation and for us today is clear. God is sovereign. That means God makes kings. God makes presidents. God decides who's going to live in the White House. God makes governors. God makes congressmen and congresswomen. God makes mayors. There is no one in a seat of power or authority who is there save for the knowledge and the will of God. But like so many today, Nebuchadnezzar didn't see it that way. Let me summarize Nebuchadnezzar's problem in another way. He was the epicenter of Nebuchadnezzar's universe. It was all about him. And isn't that what sin does to us? It pushes us to the center of our lives. It tempts us into drawing attention to ourselves. It's the reason we gossip. Because we like to make ourselves feel more important we like to make ourselves look better to others it's the reason that our favorite subject is us it's the reason our favorite word is our name because we enjoy the glory what happens when we think that we control our future is that we position ourselves at the center of our worlds the one place where god and god alone should reside most of you know that my wife and i have two foster babies right now a 13-month-old who we are in the process of adopting soon, and a six-month-old who will prayerfully be returning to his mother in the next few months. And if you don't believe in the doctrine of original sin and the idea that we like to be the center of our universes, I would just invite you to come and spend just a little bit of time with our 13-month-old. He is absolutely precious. I love him to death, but he thinks he's the center of the universe. Right? He wants his way when he wants it, and how he wants it, with little to no regard for what others may want or need. Take, for example, his younger baby brother's bottle. 
So we're in the process of transitioning him, the older one, out of formula and into milk. But the younger one, of course, still needs those bottles. And our six-month-old can be laying peacefully in his seat on the floor, enjoying his bottle when our 13-month-old will approach, stand up next to his seat, grab that bottle out of his mouth, and stand holding his brother's seat with one hand on his bottle and in his own mouth while the baby screams. But he doesn't care at all. The fact is, we don't need to be taught to be selfish or self-centered. It comes with the territory of being born with the stain of original sin. And the problem is, too many of us are never saved out of the infant-like mentality that we are the center of everything. And when we live as if we are in control, we exhibit this dangerous self-centered mentality. Rather than giving in to this me-first, self-absorbed, self-centered mentality, we should be instead, as Paul said in Galatians, crucified with Christ, so that it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. To those who live with a self-centered worldview, James says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. James wants his readers to understand that their days are already in God's hands and to acknowledge that daily, to recognize that they are not sovereign over their lives, but God is, and to seek God's will for their lives. Oh, would that we might submit ourselves to his sovereignty. That we would pray as Jesus taught us to pray that his will would be done in heaven as it is in, on earth as it is in heaven. That we would pray that his will would be done in our families as it is in heaven. That we would pray that his will would be done in our marriages as it is in heaven. That we would pray that his will would be done in our workplaces as it is in heaven. That we would pray that his will would be done in our physical bodies as it is in heaven. That we would, be, we would pray that his will would be done in our finances as it is in heaven. That we would pray that his will would be done in our church as it is in heaven. Would that we might submit ourselves and trust his sovereign grace, recognizing him as the center of all that is and giving him the glory that is due. Here's the fourth and the final danger of the delusion of self-sovereignty that we see in this passage. It perverts my definition of sin. It perverts my definition of sin. Look again at the text in verse 16. As it is, James wrote, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. The phraseology here is interesting. James literally says, church, you aren't just proud, but you're proud of your pride. You don't just boast, but you boast about your boasting. You were taught the right thing to do. The word of God was implanted in you, James has already said. But now you have so upset your concept of who you are and of God's place in your life that you're not only living in a sinful way that displeases God, but you are proud of your sin. You not only boast in your apparent self-sufficiency, but you are proud of being proud of your self-sufficiency. You failed to recognize God's role in your life and in your plans, and you revel in that omission. Your definition of sin has been perverted. It's been warped, and it's been redefined so that it doesn't even resemble what Scripture teaches. 
You see, when we believe that we are in control of our lives and no one else is, it's easy to redefine right and wrong. When there is no absolute authority over my actions, I can determine what my truth is. We see this in culture all around us with the redefinition of sexual morality. But before we too easily point the finger of conviction in this regard to the unbelieving world around us, remember these words are written to the church. Within the church of the first century and within our church, within our own lives, there are times when we have changed the definition of sin for our own good. We justify our actions. We call wrong right. And we even boast about it. As Christians, we do it every time we ignore the Word of God and we rationalize ignoring the Word of God. We do it when we know something to be wrong, but we do it anyways. And we do it when we know something to be right, but we don't do it. Let me give you two concrete examples that are relevant to us today as a church. In a few minutes, you're going to hear about the plight of modern-day orphans in San Antonio. It's a matter that we as the church must, must, must care deeply about. We must. We've already read in the first chapter of James, verse 27, that religion that is pure and undefiled before God cares for, visits the orphans. And so if you walk away from the missions moment this morning and you heard about the need for gospel-centered families to care for orphans, but you choose to do nothing about it, you're justifying your omission of something that God has clearly said needs to be a priority for us. So whether it's opening your home to an orphan, getting certified to be a babysitter, to provide respite care for foster families, donating your time as a volunteer, or just saying, you know what, I want to give or I want to be a regular prayer partner with your ministry. We must, we must care for these children. Let me give you one more concrete example. This one's going to hit a little close to home. During the five months that I've been your preacher, I've heard some gossip. It's not the norm here. And I am very, very grateful for that, by the way. This is a healthy congregation. But there are times, there are times when words are spoken that should not be spoken. Rumors have been spread in which you convince yourself that it's okay to share them. Perhaps you disguise them as a prayer request or as a concern. You tell yourself you only want what's best for Calvary Hills, and therefore you must share your heartfelt concern with others. My friends, in doing so, you are guilty of sin, even if you've redefined it. And even if you found a way to rationalize it, the tongue, remember, James said, is evil. It's a fire that is set on fire by hell itself. And so when you spread words that are hurtful and that are anything but beneficial and for the edification of the body of Christ and you justify your actions, you've redefined sin. So this morning, you don't need to be out in the world redefining a moral code to be guilty of this tendency. You and I do it right here in the church of Jesus Christ. As we close this morning, can I ask you, has your life been touched 
by any of these dangers of this delusion of self-sovereignty. Are your actions, your priorities, and your desires driven by materialism? Do you find your sense of security and, and worth in your possessions and in your wealth? Do you live as if you are guaranteed another day, another year, another decade? Do you get angry with God when God takes away someone that seems to not have lived their full life? Do you recognize that your life is but a breath, a mist, and that you were created for another world? That this life is transitory and God had the days of your life determined before you were even thought of. Are you the epicenter of your universe? Or do you, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism states, believe that your chief end in life, your purpose, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? Does a desire for God's will direct your life, or are you instead motivated by your own wants and your own desires? Author and preacher John Piper wrote this, it is about the greatness of God, not the significance of man. God made man small and the universe big to say something about himself. We are not the epicenter of our universes. And we must live constantly with that knowledge at the forefront of our hearts and minds, always seeking in everything we do to bring him the glory. And finally, have you so taken control of your life that you decide what is right and wrong? That you justify ignoring the word of God? You know the right thing to do, James reminds us in the last verse of our passage, but you don't do it. And when we know what is right, but we choose not to do it, James says in verse 17, to us, that is sin. And sadly, we find ways to convince ourselves and others that it's okay. It's okay to ignore some of God's word. We rationalize and we even revel in that disobedience. My friends, as we once again have looked into the mirror of God's word in James, I don't know about you, but I have come away realizing just how much in need of a savior I am. We need one to save us from the delusion of self-sovereignty. And we need to fall at the foot of the cross in surrender to the sovereign rule of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Would you pray with me?